If the Bible is God's word, what should we do with it? Many of us turn to it looking for guidance, for stories to encourage us and heroes to elevate as examples. In Abraham, we find inspiration to trust God with everything, just as he did by not holding back his only son. Elijah challenges us to be courageous, just as he was when he called down fire from heaven. And David encourages us to overcome any obstacle, just as he did when he slew the giant with a stone. These heroes of the faith do inspire us, but if that's all they do, we place a burden on them too great to bear. The same burden we place on ourselves when we try to live by their example. After all, Abraham was a liar. Elijah ran away to die in the wilderness when threatened, and David murdered one of his closest allies to cover up an affair. What if the Bible's heroes aren't simply models, but pictures of brokenness? People like us who need a hero too, the hero all the Bible's heroes point to, Jesus. This is the story all scripture tells from beginning to end. The story that isn't simply about how to live, but how to live through the one who lived for us. The story that invites us to continue sharing it, inviting others to follow him until the day he returns. The good news, the story of redemption, the story of the gospel. Well, good morning, everyone. It's my privilege to be able to bring the word this morning. We've been in a series, Strong Foundations, because the Bible is a strong foundation that we can build on. Last week, Pastor Brian opened uh, the series, and I just want to thank Pastor Brian and Kasha for giving me the opportunity to come up and speak to you this morning. Can we give them a hand? Don't we have awesome lead pastors? Yes. I love working for Pastor Brian and Kasha. They are awesome. Have you ever had difficulty understanding God's Word? I know I have. Is anybody brave enough to admit that, that sometimes we have difficulty understanding God's Word? Good. I'm not the only one. You're not the only one. It can be a challenging book. And there are a lot of ideas out there about the Bible. We talk about it being inspired, but that can mean different things to different people. Some think of the Bible primarily as a historical account. It's talking about people in ancient times, historical events, things of that sort. Some think of it as a book of ancient wisdom. Like it's got proverbs in it, maxims to help uh, you enrich your life um, and, and increase your quality of life. Some actually view the Bible as being outdated or oppressive. They see the inclusion of things like slavery or mistreatment of women as though the Bible were advocating for those things, and they think of the Bible as this extension of a patriarchal system. Some think of the Bible primarily as a legalistic or moral code, where, you know, the golden rule and other rules to live by so you can live a moral life. Some think of the Bible as just plain confusing. It's not in chronological order. There's beasts and dragons, and they come out of the ocean, and there's horns that speak, and all this imagery, and they think the Bible is just confusing. There are some who think the Bible is primarily teaching on social issues, like helping the poor and the sick and the needy. And because our culture has a tendency to read very brief excerpts from the Bible, It seems like each person goes away from their experience with the Bible with a different take on what it's about. And what I'd like to do this morning is to help level the playing field. I want to give you some tools to help you dig deeper into God's Word. 
The first tool that I want to give you is this uh, concept about the Bible being inspired. I want us to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Because of that experience, witnessing Jesus firsthand, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, rises or shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So the Bible claims that it is inspired by God through the activity of the Holy Spirit, working through the human authors of the Bible to communicate God's messages to us. And we call this method of inspiration or imparting truth verbal plenary inspiration. It's a fancy phrase, but it basically means this. Every word in the Bible is intentionally given by God. This means the original autographs, the first writings, are without error. God was able to move through the lives of human authors because he knew in advance how they would respond and what language they would use. He worked through the human details so the result would be divinely inspired. Now, it's a challenge to our thinking to think that something perfect could come from imperfect beings like us. But the Bible demonstrates time and time again that human frailty is not an obstacle to the Holy Spirit. He used very real people, including their languages, cultures, and experiences, like an artist would use a palette and a paintbrush, all to portray God's grace to us in high definition. When we realize that every scripture, every word in scripture is inspired, it changes how we read the Bible. Instead of merely looking for big ideas or overarching themes or metaphors, we can trust that even the words themselves carry great significance. Now, this is a huge breakthrough in understanding the Bible, because if the words in the Bible themselves are not important, then we can interpret the Bible to mean whatever we want it to mean. But if the words themselves are inspired, it means God is telling us something beautifully specific and we need to lean in and to listen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4 says, But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word. So now that we have established that each word in the Bible is important, we get to do something exciting. We get to go on a treasure hunt to unearth the meaning behind those words. Now this may come as a surprise to some of us, but the Bible was not originally written in English. The English language did not exist 2,000 years ago. England didn't exist 2,000 years ago. So to study the words in the Bible, we have to go back to the ancient languages that were around at the time the Bible was written. So the New Testament was written in ancient Greek, and the Old Testament is written in ancient Hebrew. Now, both Hebrew and Greek languages are much more precise than the English language. 
What does that mean? It means in order for me to say the same thing in Greek and Hebrew and to say that in English, it would take me many more words. So instead of a sentence, it would take me a paragraph. And really, you can see God's wisdom in that because if this Bible had originally been written in English, it would be much, much bigger, and it's already a big book. So God picked languages, Greek and Hebrew, that pack a lot of meaning into a small space. But because these ancient languages are so different from English, it is hard to get a single English translation that captures the whole meaning in one translation. So we have um, translations like word-for-word translations like the New American Standard or the King James Version. They try to pick one English word to match up with each Greek and Hebrew word. But that doesn't capture necessarily the full meaning behind those words. Then we have thought-for-thought translations, like the New International Version and the New Living Translation. And they try to expound on the meaning, but they add additional words in order to do that. And then we have paraphrase translations, like uh, the Message or the Passion Translation. And they're good at capturing the emotion and the feeling behind the words that are used. And so there are some people out there who think, and, and I totally understand Um, where they're coming from is, if this really is God's word, if he inspired it, then why are there like a hundred translations? If he said something, there should just be one. But this is what I want you to understand. The reason we have so many translations of the Bible is because it wasn't originally written in English. So what's the right version to use? Whichever one you understand. The whole point of having an English translation is because you and I are not Hebrew and Greek speakers. So pick the version of the Bible that you understand best. But just know that if we want to dig deeper, then we're going to have to look up specific words in the original language. Now, I gain my love for studying Hebrew and Greek from watching my dad. My parents met in seminary in Ohio, and I was this little girl, and I would watch my dad studying the Bible, and he would always lay lengthways across the couch. I don't know how he could study that way, but he would prop the Bible up on his knees, and then he would have this ginormous tome right next to him, this big um, Strong's Concordance. It's a dictionary of Hebrew and Greek words, and I would watch him underlining the verses and looking up the words, and to me, he was like um, Harry Jones uh, Sr., Henry Jones Sr. from the Indiana Jones movies. And I was like Indiana Jones, and I thought of my dad like unlocking these ancient mysteries, going back to these languages, and I wanted to be just like him. And so that had a huge impact on me. Now, thankfully, we don't have to carry big books around with us now. Most of these things are available online. To study Greek and Hebrew, we need what is called an interlinear version of the Bible. That means it's one line of ancient text followed by one line of English text, so we can follow along. And then we also need to have a good word dictionary to help us uh, understand what the words mean. And thankfully, these are both available on the internet for free. And if you know what you're doing, it only takes you 30 seconds. So would you like to learn how to become Hebrew and Greek scholars in about 30 seconds? Does that sound good? Yeah, it sounds great, doesn't it? So I'm going to show you how easy it is. So let's take a look at two verses that use the same English word, but they mean completely different things in Hebrew. Are you ready? 
So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 8, and I want to give you a little backstory. Um, we were recently in the book of Genesis at the beginning of the year, if you follow along with our SOAP schedule. SOAP stands for Scripture Observation Application and Prayer, and it's how we digest God's Word together in community here at Bethany. Um, and so we were in this book in January, and in Genesis chapter 8, what has happened is the world was very wicked, um, and God sent a flood to basically start over. Noah was in this boat called the ark. He was there with his family and one of every kind of animal. And then the flood subsides, it stops, and then the ark comes to rest on the top of this mountain range. And so Genesis 8 picks up on the ark resting on the mountain range, and now Noah is just waiting for the right time to get off the boat. He's been in there 150 days. That's a long time. So we're going to take a look at two verses. And they're pretty straightforward, I think you'll agree. Let's look at Genesis chapter 8, verse 10. It says, So he waited another seven days longer, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. It's pretty straightforward. Noah waited. He sent out a dove. Um, let's look at Genesis 8, 12. Then he waited another seven days longer and sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. Those verses sound really boring. Like, Noah waited, and he sent out a dove, and then he waited again, and he sent out a dove, and it just it didn't come back. That's the only difference. So in English, this, it doesn't seem like there's anything worth further investigation, but when we take a look at the Hebrew, you'll see that it's really quite different. So I have a little slide showed for you. We are going to become Hebrew scholars in 30 seconds or less, so we're going to go to Google. We're going to type in Bible Hub interlinear and then the verse reference, Genesis 8.10. You can do this with any verse. You could do Bible Hub interlinear John 3.16, Bible Hub interlinear Jeremiah 29.11. Then we do our search, and we're going to pick that second link because it's got the specific verse we're looking for, Genesis 8.10. And there it is. That's the interlinear version. You can see that the, it's kind of small on the screen, but you can see that there is a row of black Hebrew writing, and then English writing in red. And just a, um, something that is helpful to know, Hebrew reads right to left, not left to right. So if you're going to look up something in Hebrew, you have to read backwards, basically. And we're not going to worry about the numbers and the letters because that's mostly grammatical notation. We're going to click on the number over the word wait. And he waited. And it's going to take us to the Hebrew word. That was pretty easy, right? Like, you guys are all Hebrew scholars now. You can all look up words in Hebrew. So the word for wait here is cool. Say cool. Cool. Let me hear it again. When you look at the definition, it means to whirl, dance, and rise. So let's keep scrolling. To twist, to writhe in pain, especially childbirth. Figurative, be in severe pain or anguish in contrition, in anxious longing. That does not sound like waiting to me. Usually when we think of waiting, like we're in the doctor's office, we're scrolling through Facebook, playing a game, although now we can't do that because we're waiting in our cars, right? Waiting for someone to come out and take our temperature and admit us. But we associate waiting in our culture with something really boring. And he is Noah, and he's waiting, but he is churned up in agony. He is twisted in knots. He is a hot mess. That's how he's waiting. Now, we would never have picked up on that emotion in just the English. But when we go to the Hebrew, we see that in the Scripture. So let's do the same thing for Genesis 8:12. I think we've got the ha a handle on this now. 
We don't go to Google, Bible Hub, Interlinear, Genesis 8.12. Let's look up this one. I'm going to click on that second link. And then here's the interlinear version for verse 12. And I want to click on the number that's over the word wait. Is that the word cool? No, it's a completely different word. So in verse 10, it was cool, which meant to writhe and be in anguish and pain. And this is yahal, and it means to have hope, to wait expectantly. It's a much more positive word. So this got me thinking, like, what would get Noah from being all churned up on the inside and all anxious in verse 10, and two verses later, he's full of optimism and hope? Like, what happened? It was only seven days. Something important, something significant happened between verse 10 and verse 12, and we would have completely missed it if we had just stayed in the English. So I came across these words when I was doing a word study on the word hope, um, and hope and waiting in the Bible are two inextricably linked concepts because you don't hope for something you already have, right? You, you have to wait. That's part of hoping. And in our culture, hope is more like wishful thinking. Like, I hope it happens. I hope I win the lottery, you know? But in the Bible, hope is a confident expectation of a positive outcome. And so I was doing a study on hope, and I wanted to know more about what the Bible has to say on hope and how do I communicate that to others. And our world really needs God's kind of hope right now. Can you agree? Like Noah, we have all been through a shocking global event, and people are twisted with anxiety on the inside of them. You know, Noah had a hard time waiting to get off the boat, and I think we can identify with him. Raise your hand if you're ready for all of this to be over, all the pandemic stuff, all of the face masks, everything. Yeah, we're waiting to get off this ride too. And it's been a bumpy one. And so when I was studying this passage, and, and by the way, I was a stay-at-home mom at the time that the Lord showed these things to me. Um, I was uh, looking for hope because I needed it. Uh, and so I was studying the Word, and so I was curious why Noah's emotions would change so much in the space of two verses. And it's good to ask questions when we read the Bible. It's good to have curiosity. I, I didn't understand because... Noah already knew the water was receding. The ark had already stopped. He could see the tops of the mountains start to emerge. So it didn't make sense to me why he would go in just such a short time from being so churned up on the inside to being cool as a cucumber. And I think the answer for why Noah was able to make that transition is actually um, hidden in what we would call the allegorical layer of interpreting scripture. I want to unpack that in a moment, but first let's just review the tools that we have so far. So the first tool that we had is understanding that every word in the Bible is inspired by God. Every single word is important. It's not an accident. The second tool that we had is recognizing that the Bible isn't originally written in English. It's written in Hebrew and Greek, and now we're all Hebrew and Greek scholars. We can look things up very quickly and find out what that is. This third set of tools is based on this point. The Bible is multidimensional. Not only are there clear points of truth, but also layers of interpretation. And if you have been soaping along with us, you are already familiar with some of these layers of interpretation. The first layer is the literal layer. It's a plain reading of Scripture. So in this passage in Genesis, Noah literally sent out birds from the ark. It's not a metaphor, like he actually did that. The language is written in prose, it's historical narrative. 
Um, and so we call this a plain reading of Scripture. There's even a cute phrase out there, when the plain reading of Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. Right? So there's that literal layer. And so if you are soaping along with us at Scripture observation, application, and prayer, this would be the O. This is um, the observation, who, what, where, when, how, uh, where, when, why, how, and the inductive reasoning as we're going through making observations about the passage that we're reading. The second layer of interpretation is called the moral layer. It's how we draw ethical principles from the Bible. So in this case, we want to understand how Noah could go from being really anxious to all of a sudden having hope. Who wants to have that ability? I do. I don't want to be all churned up on the inside and writhing around and, and getting caught up in what's going on around me. I want to be able to wait with confident expectation of something good happening. Well, if we just stay in that literal layer of interpretation, then our reasoning would be like this. Well, I didn't just go through a global flood, I don't live in an ark, and I don't have some doves to send out, so this doesn't apply to me. We all know that that's ridiculous, right? Clearly, there are principles that even if you're not in the exact circumstance that Noah's in, you can take them out and apply them to your life, and that's what we do in the A of SOAP, the application. Right? Scripture, observation, application, and prayer. And so if you are soaping along with us, then you are applying that literal and the moral layer of interpretation, uh, interpreting Scripture. But there is a third layer that I want to camp on for the rest of today's gathering, and that is the allegorical layer of interpretation. These are patterns, types, symbols, images, that are tucked away in scripture that represent profound ideas or can even foreshadow future events. Now, there are two guidelines when we're digging into the allegorical layer. The first thing we have to do is let scripture interpret scripture. Unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, Bible teachers out there that get really wacky really quickly because they don't use these hermeneutical principles. They don't use these principles in order to help them interpret the allegorical layer correctly. So when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, it's like this. If I see dove, I'm not going to reference my culture and say, oh, that dove symbolizes world peace. I'm going to look elsewhere in the Bible where it talks about a dove, and I'll see in the New Testament in particular, the dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So I allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. I don't bring my own personal definition of what a dove is. I look elsewhere in God's Word to define that. There's another principle, and the Bible says, on the account of two or three witnesses shall any matter be established. In other words, I can't just take a Bible verse and interpret it any way I want to and run with it. I need to find at least two or three other places in Scripture that support the conclusion that I'm coming to, and we call this agreement. I need to make sure that my interpretation is in agreement with the rest of Scripture. So I want us to apply the allegorical layer to Genesis chapter 8, verses 16 through 12, and I think what you'll see is it really draws out some profound meaning from the text that we just uh, have gone through. So the key to discovering why Noah switched from being all churned up on the inside, full of anxiety, to all of a sudden having hope in the space of a week um, is, I think, to look at a key image, and that's that of the branch. We're going to read uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 11. And the dove came to Noah in the evening, and behold, in its beak was a fresh olive leaf. That word leaf can be branch, twig, sprout. It's some kind of greenery. 
So Noah knew that the water was low on the earth. That's it. That's what happened between verse 10 and verse 12. Verse 10, Noah's churned up in nuts. Verse 11, the dove comes with this leaf in its mouth. And then verse 12, he is content and having a positive future. And for me, that kind of oh, didn't seem satisfying enough. Like, he already knew the waters were receding. Why did it transform him so much? And I believe that, that, that there's an allegory in this that helps us to understand what God is communicating through this event. So I want you to see in Genesis 8:11 two things. So we have this little shoot, this twig, this branch, this olive leaf, and we also have a dove, right? So those two things side by side, something green from a bush or a tree, and we have a dove who can be a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And remember, on the account of two or three witnesses shall any matter be established, okay? So let's go ahead and go to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2. Out of the stump, this is talking about Messiah, Jesus. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Isaiah is making a prediction about the Messiah. He's calling him the branch. He's calling him a shoot. And side by side with that is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the dove. Isaiah 53 verse 2. For he, Jesus the Messiah, grew up before him, that's God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Again, Isaiah is referencing Jesus the Messiah, as though he was a shoot, a plant. Notice the reference to being pulled out of dry ground. When Noah saw that olive leaf, it was a symbol that the ground was drying out. Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. Where's the ark? Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. So Ezekiel, not just Isaiah, but Ezekiel presents this image of the Messiah being this shoot, this plant, and he's associating it with birds finding rest in its branches. Before the branch came to Noah, or this olive leaf carried by a dove, Noah had no hope. Even though the flood was subsiding and a new world was being carved by the receding waters, Noah was anxious and depressed. But when he saw the branch, he had hope. Can you see that image right now? You and I might be anxious. We might feel trapped in the circumstances that we're in. But if we will look to Jesus, the branch, we can transition from waiting in anxiety to waiting with a confident expectation that something good is going to happen to us. And that's why Noah's attitude changed. What a wonderful picture for us that we can live by today. We can wait for God's rescue with confidence and hope. And so there are some people who will come to me like after um, I've done a soap session with my husband or like preach the word, and they'll say, Amanda, how do you draw so much out of these scriptures? I just read like Noah waiting in the ark and sending out a bunch of birds, and I just breezed right past it. How can you see here a picture of Jesus? And it's through these very tools that I'm presenting to you today, like you can do the same thing. When you realize that every word in the Bible is inspired, when you look up some of those words in the original language, 
And when you apply these different layers of interpretation, you can draw this language out for yourself as well, this meaning. But I don't think that this picture of Jesus in Genesis 8 is a coincidence. I actually think it's something, part of uh, a much more profound picture, and that of all biblical history with Jesus at the center. So I want to make sure that you're tracking with me because we're going to kind of dive in a little deeper to this allegorical layer, and I think when we do, you're going to see something amazing. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's awesome. First, we're going to look at a principle in the Bible, Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Notice God says he declares the end from the beginning. What is the beginning of the Bible? Genesis, right? So Genesis is a prime place for God to announce the end from the beginning, and I believe he's done that in these seven power pack verses in Genesis 8, verses 6 through 12. So God has a habit of telling us in advance what he's doing. And so I think that each of the birds that Noah sends out is actually a picture or a foreshadowing of the different ages of revelation that we see in the Bible. So I want to go back to the beginning of this portion in Genesis 8. When the ark finally rests, what's the first thing that Noah releases? It's not a dove. Let's go check it out. Genesis chapter 8, verse 6 through 7. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. So the very first thing that Noah sent out to see if it was time to disembark from the ark was not a dove, it was a raven. And this raven just went up into the atmosphere and just started circling round and round to and fro. It didn't come back to the ark, it didn't rest, it was up there the whole time until there was something to land on. And it didn't come back to the ark, so I don't know if he just had enough of Noah after 150 days that he didn't want to come back, but that raven was gone. It was, he was out there. And so what's interesting, uh, what stood out to me is the phrase to and fro, because there's another place in Scripture where that to and fro phrase is used. Job chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Satan, in the age after the flood, it was kind of like the Wild West times in the Bible. There was no scripture given. There was no, nobody had anything to reference or look up to tell them who God was. People were being, you know, doing pagan things and just running off and creating their own ideology. And we see patriarchs like Job and Abraham discovering the one true God, but they didn't have any Bible to guide them during that time. And so we see uh, Satan, what he's doing during this time is he's trying to find someone to land on. He's trying to accuse Job, and he can't do that because Job is a righteous man. We even uh, see Abraham in Genesis 15 fending off ravens, fending off these birds of prey um, with his sacrifice. So I want you to get this picture. So we know when God created the world, he rested, right? It says on the seventh day he rested. And in the same way, after the world was recreated by the flood, the ark rested. 
So there's like this parallel imagery going on. And shortly after creation, Satan was cast out of heaven and didn't come back, and he wandered to and fro. And after the ark rested, the raven was released, and it wandered to and fro and didn't return. And so I think this is a picture of that age, that post-Diluvian age, the age after the flood, where men and women didn't have access to God's word, but they had to sort of fend for themselves and fend off the raven, if you will. So now we see a picture emerge that Noah, in some ways, is a, a picture or type of Father God and his heart. And the ark is a picture or type of heaven. It's on a high mountain cut off from the world that's been judged beneath it. And so what does Noah do next? He sends out a dove. Genesis chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. Oh, sorry, 8 through 9. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. We've discussed previously that the dove is a picture uh, of the Holy Spirit. And we read uh, in the beginning of this message that the prophets of old were moved by the Holy Spirit as the scriptures were written. And so I want you to recognize what's happened to this dove that Noah has sent out. He sent out this dove, and it's found nowhere to land, and then it comes back, and then that's when Noah feels that turmoil. He didn't feel that after he sent out the raven and it didn't come back. But when he sent out the dove and it came back because there was nowhere to land, that's when he started having that cool, that, that kind of waiting where he was sort of writhing on the inside. He was upset. And you can see, I think, the same emotion in Jesus when we go to Luke chapter 11, verse 47 through 48. What sorrow awaits you? For you build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you join in their crime by building the monuments. I don't think Jesus said that passively when he pointed out to his generation that every time God had sent them the word, they had rejected it. That dove had found no place to land. And so what caused Noah pain and anxiety was seeing the dove returning to the ark because there was nowhere to land. And in the same way, God had sent out his dove, the Holy Spirit, through the prophets, through the authors of the Bible, and his word was rejected time and time again. It found nowhere to land. Imagine how God in heaven felt when he saw that happen. We see that in the parable of the vineyard when he keeps sending his servants and then he says, I think I'll send my son, but they keep rejecting him. No wonder there was 400 years of silence after the last prophet, Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament. God had taken that dove that had been rejected and he drew it to himself just as Noah took the dove and drew it to himself. So in Genesis 8.10, we see that there's this, this uh, anguish and Noah is a picture of God the Father in anguish. His word has been rejected. But what does Noah do? He sends out a dove again. And then what does the Heavenly Father do? He sends out his dove. And let's see who it lands on. John chapter 1, verse 32. Then John the Baptist testified, I saw the Holy Spirit 
descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. So the next time that the dove is sent out, what does it find? The olive leaf. And when God sends the Holy Spirit to Jesus as he's been baptized in the Jordan, he lands on Jesus, the branch of righteousness, the tender shoot planted on the mountain of God. Abram said, in the mountain of God it will be provided. He was speaking of Jesus, and Jesus is that branch that the Holy Spirit landed on. So what happens next? We know the story. Jesus, like all the other prophets before him, was rejected. He was crucified for the sins of the world and resurrected by the power of God. He remained on the earth for a little while, and then he ascended to heaven to accomplish something important. And we can read that in John chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. But now I am going away to the one who sent me. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, the dove, won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. So Jesus was saying, I have to go back to the one who sent me so that way he can send you the dove. When the branch was carried up to the ark, the leaf, what did Noah send out for the last time? The dove. Genesis 8, 12. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Notice that he waited. What did Jesus tell the disciples to do when he ascended to the Father? He says, wait until I send the Holy Spirit to you. And then we read in Acts 2, 1 through 4, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. The dove had found places and people to land on. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. The dove in the story about Noah didn't need to go back to the ark because it found a place to rest. And in the same way, this dove, the Holy Spirit, didn't have to return to the Father. It was sent to us because he found a place to rest on you and on me. We are living in that final age of biblical history, an age in which the Spirit has been given to us to lead us into all truth. So I want us to think for a moment about how amazing this is. Here, in the book of Genesis, written hundreds of years before the prophets, over a thousand years before Christ and the formation of the church at Pentecost, the entire plan was laid out in the correct sequence. God revealed the end from the beginning. First, he gave us a picture of the confusion in the age after the flood when there were no scriptures to live by, symbolized by the raven. He gave us a picture of the first age that he sent out his dove, giving his word to the prophets, and that would be rejected. And those same prophets told us about a branch who would bring us hope, and then a new age of God's spirit, where the dove would be sent out and would not return. We are living in that age. This is our God. This is his word. It's not simply a book of ancient human wisdom. It is divinely inspired in every detail, every word, layer upon layer, precept by precept. You can trust it. You can take it to heart. It is the living, active word of God that speaks to all who are willing to listen. And my question to you this morning is, are you willing to listen? Are you willing for that dove to land on you? 
Are you willing to dig deeper to uncover those hidden gems that are in God's Word? I'd like to say that I came across all this um, listening to some fantastic preacher, but at the time, as I mentioned earlier, I was a stay-at-home mom just looking for some hope, and I stumbled across those words. I asked some questions, and the Holy Spirit began unpacking things for me. And when I saw this, I was just floored. I didn't have anybody to share it with. I didn't have a platform. I was, who was I going to tell? Like my little kids, like, guess what? I found in God's Word today. All of the whole plan is in Genesis. There was no one for me to tell it to. So I'm glad that I had the opportunity to share it with you this morning. But I want to encourage you. You don't have to go to seminary to find amazing truths in God's Word. He is able and willing to show you exactly where you're at. And all it is is you just need to take a step. What's your step today? Maybe it's just to read it, and that's great. Find a translation you understand. Maybe the step is, you know what? I might dig into the Hebrew and Greek a little bit, look up some words and find out what they mean. And if you do, come and have a conversation with me because I love talking about stuff like that. Maybe it is to apply those different layers or to start soaping if you haven't already done so. But you can dig deeper in God's Word. I'd like everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes. Maybe you have lived your life not really paying attention to the Bible because it just seemed archaic or maybe you had a hard time believing that it is true. But I'm hoping that after today's uh, message that you are open to the idea like, wow, there is a lot more in God's Word than I thought that there was. And so if you have been struggling to even have faith that God's Word is true and you want God to help you take a step of believing that He is willing to speak to you through His Word, then I'd like you to raise your hand and I would love to pray for you that God will help you to take a step closer and grow in faith. That's awesome. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, you see those who raised their hands and said, yes, you know, I want to grow in faith and confidence in the Bible. It is, it is amazing. It is, that's the proof that it's divinely inspired. So many layers to it. And so, Father, I pray that you would begin building up the faith of those who raise their hands so that when they read your word, it's not just something that applied to people in the past, but it's living and active in their lives right now. I'd like everyone to keep their heads bowed and eyes closed. Maybe you are familiar with Scripture, but you've kind of lost your love of it. Maybe you feel like, I've heard every Bible um, story, and I've been in so many Bible studies, but I hope today you see that God is inviting you to take a step deeper. You can still go further in. You can still go further up. And so if you feel like God is putting something on your heart, like, I, I want you to dig deeper. Or maybe you just have that desire in you right now, like, I want to understand God's Word. I don't want to miss a thing. Treasure after treasure, treasure, I want to be the one helping dig that up. Then I want you to raise your hand and say, God, I want you to help me discover these treasures. That's awesome. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, you see those raising their hands who have a, a desire to know you more intimately through your word and to uncover these amazing principles and precepts. And Father, I pray that you would increase our spiritual metabolism, that you would increase our hunger and thirst for the word of God. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring revelation to everyone who raised their hands. So as they open the Bible, that from that point forward, that it would just won't be the same. Like principle after principle would leap off the page at them and that you would speak directly into their life and then use them to bring hope to the people around them. And so, Father, I thank you for the anointing that's in your word. I thank you for those who raise their hands here and online. And I pray, God, that you would give us all increased understanding of your word and a hunger and thirst for it. In Jesus' name, amen.